Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Today's uh, text comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I just ask that you would pull us to yourself today. Um, We are just a room full of beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And the bread is good. It is so good. So I pray that by your spirit, we would be able to dive into this text. We would be able to understand and process what you say. We would be able to go slow with what we don't understand. And we would be able to apply what you give us to apply today. We pray that you would elevate our view of your word. We pray that you would elevate our view of you more importantly. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, guys, check this out. Pastor Nathan gave me two weeks because he figures I try to fit too much into one week. So you guys got two weeks of me this week. I want everybody to take a Bible. Everybody take a Bible, even if you got a still a copy in front of you. Everybody grab a Bible, put it in your hand. Your phone will not work for this. Will not work. Not that it's bad, not that it's of the devil, Bobby Boucher, but just take a Bible, okay? Let's just go. All right, here we go. Ready? Everybody take a Bible. Anybody know how many authors wrote this book? Do not pull the church answer and say Jesus. Yes, God gave us the scriptures. Mike, you said? About 40. Anybody know how long it took? About somewhere between 15 on the high side, 2,000 years for this scripture to be completed. They had not 66 books, they had scrolls, right? It was later put together for us. Most of the time when people talked about scripture, they weren't talking about a whole book. The word Bible literally means library, right? Because it's a library or a collection of books. And so over 15 to 1600 years, over 40 authors, three different languages, three different continents, over, uh, I lost the amount of countries, all this kind of stuff. Um, This book came into being. The scriptures, what we call the scriptures, the Bible came into being. William Tyndale, anybody ever heard of that guy? Tyndale Publishing House. He was one of the first ones to translate the Bible into English. Literally, he smuggled Bibles into England because they didn't want the Bibles in England in English because if it was in English, then that means people who couldn't speak Latin could read it for themselves and find out where the church was wrong. Literally, he wasn't burned alive, but he was strangled, and then later they burned his body because they considered him a heretic. And his thought was this. His thought was that at, by the time I'm done translating the Bible into English, the, plow, the, per, the kid who pushes the plow will know as much as the priests in Rome about this book. This is an amazing book. This is the number one bestseller of all time. Every year, it is the bestseller 
every year. They don't even put it on the list anymore because it's kicking everybody else's tail. It is the most shoplifted book. Let me say it before you one more time. It's the most shoplifted book in the history of all humanity. Every minute, every minute there are 50 copies of this book sold. By the time I'm done, depending on how well you agree with me and help me in this sermon, there will be 1,500 copies of this book sold. Why is it? What is it about this book that makes it so special? It is not the only religious book. It is not the only sacred writing, right? There are others out there. There are other sacred texts that, we, that humanity considers sacred. So what is it about this? And I, I could kind of give you my thought. I think it speaks to the deepest needs of humanity, and I think it does that better than any other source out there. We could argue that or talk about that all we want to. But let's just get honest about this book for just a moment. Some of the greatest acts of humanity have, been, have originated based upon the teachings of this book. Schools, education, hospitals, care, concern, those kinds of things. Social organizations that help people thrive and flourish and take care of people who were in need have originated because of this very book and what it contains inside of it. You're with me? You know that, right? You do all the research. I don't have time to give you all the ins and outs of that. This book has also been the source of horrific atrocities. Horrific atrocities. And so here's what I'm asking, here's what I'm after. This book, how can it be in one sense used to be for all of this good and in another sense, how can it be used for so much evil? In the early beginnings of America, the country, there were people who owned other human beings as slaves. And I don't know how much credibility there is to, you can actually, there was a, they called it the Slaveholder's Bible in the uh, Museum of the Bible, wherever they just built that, where is that, Washington, D.C.? They called it the Slaveholder's Bible, and there's some arguments as to its credibility, but basically what it did was it took out a whole lot of texts about redemption, about freedom, about rejoicing in the hope that is to come. And it did major on texts that talked about slavery and talked about servants being obedient to your master. And so it was almost, and whether the motives and the intents are hard to understand, and we could probably debate those and argue those, but there was in circulation at that time, a text that supported this view of slavery. And at the same time, there were slaves who found a book that contained the Exodus story. And the hope of redemption. And they literally patterned their songs after the content of this book. And they found hope. And they found rejoicing. And they found faith that one day all of this misery and horrific atrocity would come to an end. And so one group used this to enslave another human being. And that very human being used this same book to find hope and joy in Jesus. How do you, how do you find the same thing out of one book? Anybody remember this guy named Thomas Jefferson? Everybody knows him, right? One of the founding fathers has this whole kind of signs, the Declaration of Independence, that kind of stuff. Um, and he talks about um, that all men are created equal, created equal. We'll say it like that. I think we all should not use ours anymore. Um, actually, the Brewer kids are the ones who make me not want to do that because when the kids were little, they would always say they're ours with a W rather than an R. So anyways, I digress as usual. You're used to it. Um, Thomas Jefferson loved the morality of the Bible. He loved the teachings of Jesus. He did not believe Jesus was the son of God. 
He rejected the concept that Jesus was the Son of God, that his miracles were real, that the resurrection was real. So literally what Thomas Jefferson did is he took a pair of scissors and he cut out the pieces that he liked and he taped them or whatever they used in those days. He pasted them to this page and what he was left with from the Bible was this mutilated copy and he has now his own version of the scripture which what it did was it made Jesus more palatable. It took all his miracles and his resurrection and all of these things out and just left us with this guy who had a great set of moral teachings. You can actually find this Bible, okay? I mean, this is real. This was his second copy or second attempt of it. He had another one. And so here's what you see. You see a man who who likes part of it, but doesn't like all of it. Why is that? Here's what that leaves us with the question. I'll leave us with a couple of questions. Is this book inherently good? Or is it not? Is it just a matter of what we do with it and what we don't do with it? Or is it both? Now, I'll leave you to come to your own conclusions, but I will tell you this. I believe that Jesus has a perspective on the scriptures. And I would say this, that Jesus' view is never lower than my view. Jesus' view of Scripture is always higher. It's always higher of morality. It's always higher of holiness. It's always higher of righteousness. It is always higher than our view. And so here's what we have in this text. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and there is a lot here. Listen, we're going to try to work our way through verse 19 today. We're going to come back to verse 20 next week. We're not gonna answer a lot of the questions that are surrounding this. We discuss these things a lot. We just don't have time to do that. But what I do want you to understand right out of the gate is this. I want you to understand that what Jesus is talking about at its heart, at its core in Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 20 is the subject of the scriptures, okay? You will read this. Do not think in verse number 17 that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, Okay? Now, our mind automatically gravitates towards the word law because much of the New Testament will kind of dissect this subject, right? But Jesus is not talking solely about the law. He is talking about the law and the prophets. This is a Jewish way to refer to the scriptures. Okay? So we're referring to their Old Testament. Okay? So Jesus now is giving us his understanding and his view of the scripture. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this and I want to kind of piece out this line by line. I want to show you what Jesus thinks of scripture. I'm going to unpack it and then I'm going to repack it. Okay? So Micah, we were, I was moving the other day and Madeline came over to help and Madeline was just, just a trooper and she comes out bringing everything and she starts putting it in my truck and Micah goes, I don't pack it. He's just going to repack it anyway. And that's right. That's what a good dad does, right? He's just, at one, in one sense, I was offended. Like, what kind of guy does he think I am? And in another sense, I was like, eh, I, I will repack it, right? I got to put this all in right. So we're going to kind of unpack what Jesus says here, and then we're going to put it all back together in handles that I think are really important. If we get time, I'm going to show you how to put some feet to this, okay? So let's do this. Here's what he says. First of all, verse 17, do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. So this phrase, do not think, is important for us, because what it does is it connects us to the culture that Jesus is speaking to. In other words, if you tell somebody, don't think something, then what you believe is that they might think something else, right? And so Jesus says, don't think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. And the reason why he says this is because Jesus is this new teacher, 
Okay, he's called a rabbi. In Matthew chapter four, back up in verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues and he was preaching, right? Jesus is at the very least this teacher and he's coming on the scene and he's teaching this. It is fresh, it is exciting. And he's teaching this to a people who for the most part, hear me now, for the most part understood scriptures to be their rule of life, okay? They believed that the Old Testament was their rule of life. It's the way they lived. It's the way they were to practice. And so Jesus is now talking to a people who viewed Scripture like this. To be sure, there's probably also those who use Scripture for their own ends in Jesus' day. That's not a new thing, okay? Probably also those who were tired of all the law keeping and the law editing and the law adding. But Jesus basically was talking to a people who shared a view of scripture that was very high. And so here he comes on the scene and he's teaching this and it's fresh and it sounds new and it's exciting. Here's the question. How does the new relate to the old? Okay. Anybody familiar with the concept of a regime change? We hear that a lot. I don't know. I know we're an uber-political people. I don't know that I may be just too naive to really feel it when one president changes to another. I mean, I think I do, but not to the degree that I think other people feel it. So let me see. Um, I know everybody in here is an OU football fan. So uh, OU football is going through this regime change right now, right? They got rid of a coach, and they brought in a new coach, and now everybody is comparing the old coach to the new coach and the new coach to the old coach, right? You want to see how the old and the new mesh up, okay? So when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins teaching, his teaching looks like it's in direct opposition to the Pharisees, the teachers of the day. And so what Jesus does automatically out of the gate is he clarifies what his relationship is to the old. What is his teaching's relationship to the old teachings? Is that static? Is that stuck to my face too close? That's right. I, I don't have a good beard, which is why I kicked Isaiah out of the house, because he had one at 13 better than mine. Um, I got no time for people like that. Okay? So think about this. There would have been those who would have been skeptical about Jesus' teaching and about the newness of it. There always is, right? How many of you are afraid of anything that's new? Don't lie. It's the Jesus hour, right? Okay, don't lie. Okay, so there would have been some who would have been skeptical because Jesus was teaching new. And so for them, Jesus calms the worry here. But there also would have been those probably in the crowd who were like, dude, give me something new. How many of you in here are just like, I want something new. I'm tired of the old, right? Okay, so we got these mixture of people, right? And so Jesus would calm the one and he would pump the brakes on the other and say, now, wait a minute, let me kind of explain this and how all of this works, Okay. Here he pumps the brakes. How does his way of life fit into everything that they have known, everything that God himself has revealed up to this point? So here he says, do not think that I am come to what? Abolish, destroy, annul, depends on what version you're using. The concept here is, this is again, this is huge for the audience that Jesus is speaking to. It's actually a large discussion in the New Testament, okay? The follower of Jesus and their relationship to the law. It would be impossible to have that entire discussion here. We can't do it, right? Not to mention, I don't think Jesus is necessarily having the same discussion as Paul is having later on in the New Testament. I think they relate. I think they're connected. But to make them both say the same thing, I think, is to miss what he is saying. And so here's what we do. We kind of have to catch a little bit this to do good work on the text. Um, but I, don't wanna, I can't unpack it all. So let's do this, okay? Most Bible students seem to agree that the law or the rule, okay, Law means rule. It's just a way to live, okay? A lot of times the term confuses. Let's do this. A lot of, most Bible students agree that there are basically the law that existed within the nation of Israel falls into about two or three categories, okay? So I'll give them to you, then I'll explain them to you. 
okay? And that, there is a test, so you do have to listen and remember. Moral, there's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and then there's what they call the judicial law. Moral, ceremonial, judicial, okay? So the moral law are these things that exist in nature. They just are. They are true. They're the way we're supposed to work. They, uh, they talk about how we are to love God and love his creation. And these are unchanging. So in the Old Testament, and bef- whether you know it or not, long before the Mosaic law ever entered into existence, the law don't murder existed, right? The concept of the Ten Commandments essentially existed before. So even before Moses and came and gave the law on Mount Sinai, I still wasn't supposed to kill Micah, right? Law comes... I'm still not supposed to kill Micah. Law's gone. I'm still, yeah, kill him, right. Sweet. Man, I've been waiting on this day, bro. Okay, so so you understand what I'm saying, right? There are some things that transcend culture and time and space. They just are true. That's what we call the moral law. They exist out of the character and nature of life itself. And so this is true all the way, and they don't change regardless of who you are, what you like, where you're from, or what time you existed in creation. The moral law is, this is what Jesus will teach. This is what Paul will teach. Paul will say, all of the fulfilling of the law is summed up in this one word, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what, is he, what law is he talking about? Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't kill. All of these things, right? These are the, we would call them the Ten Commandments, essentially, right? So they're transcendent beyond time. Then there's this ceremonial law. Ceremonial law has to do with the sacrifices, the temple system, the ins and outs, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the holy days, all these things, okay? And they're basically what they are is they're a way to regulate life and religious practice for a certain group of people for a certain time period in a certain culture. Those things often don't transcend culture. As a matter of fact, I would argue this, that anytime Paul is arguing against the law, he's arguing against the wrong use of the law, number one, and he's arguing the ceremonial law and not moral law. I could unpack all that. We don't have time to do that, Okay. Basically, it means this, and it's kind of the same with the judicial laws. They're kind of a way to govern the people of a certain period, of a certain culture, of a certain time, and they don't seem to transcend time. As a matter of fact, they will argue that we don't need to follow those anymore, okay? So um, let's, let's think of it like this. Um, parents, how many of you have bath time with the kids? Okay, Chad and Rosalinda, you guys have bath time with the kids? No bath time with the kids. Really? You don't have that? Does that mean your kids don't bathe? (laughs) Right, okay. So we don't have bath time anymore, right? Boys, we don't have bath time anymore. Things change, right? There are some rules that exist for a certain period of time, and then they're not needed anymore. It makes sense with you? Okay. So this was the first week that the boys were on their own. They live on their own now. I kicked them out. Actually, really, if you think about it, they kicked me out. I mean, this is really weird how all this worked out. Okay. So my boys kicked me out. I would, I would wager, I would wager that if we go back to their apartment this afternoon, which you're all invited, not my apartment, I don't care, um, that it does not look like it would look if I were there. Anybody want to wager? If I, was a, if I was a betting man, you know, I would say it probably doesn't. Okay, I don't know that for sure. I've just got a hunch, okay? I've got like 23 years of experience of a hunch, okay? Um, But here's the reality. That's their show now. That's not my show anymore. Not my rules, not my house anymore, right? However, there is still a rule that exists. They still have to love me and respect me. 
Let me just repeat that for their hearing. They still need to love me and respect me. I still have to love and nurture them, right? My relationship to them is not, that's not done. But some of the rules and the expectations change, right? Okay. So when Jesus says this, he says, I'm not come to destroy the law. This is what he is after, okay? He's telling us this. He even goes on in the text later, and he will talk. He'll give six examples of prevailing interpretation of God's will. He'll talk about murder. He'll talk about adultery. He'll talk about divorce. He'll talk about all of these. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring them back not to what is wrong with the Scripture or what is wrong with the law. What he brings them back to is what has been wrong in the understanding and the interpretation of that law. Okay, so basically it is this. Jesus and Paul both argue when they argue this, they almost argue, always seem to be arguing the ceremonial aspects and reminding us that, that to fulfill the law, the law that is transcended across time and culture, they expect and expect us to be obedient. But there are also those who will always use the law improperly. Um, and, and so there are some aspects that carry over and there are some aspects that don't carry over. And here's the final answer. You ready for this? Jesus defines which is which. Not me, not you. Jesus defines what transcends and what doesn't transcend. Okay? There, and so all of their argument is this, is that there are people who will horribly twist the law to their own end. It's not a new problem. They will do it. And so Paul and Jesus will always argue that the law is good and valuable, but it is not good and valuable when it is used by our own end or for our own end. The moral law is, a, is, is still perceived by Jesus, even by Paul, as the way to live. But the ceremonial law, hear me, is never the way to be made right with God. If you want to know what the argument of Scripture is against the law, it is this, is that the ceremonial law can never make anyone right with God. It didn't in the Old Testament. It doesn't in the New Testament. Paul's argument is this, is that there wasn't a law that people could be made righteous by because the law doesn't just demand good behavior. It demands a good heart. And so what Jesus and Paul argue is this, is that the law could never give us what it called for. We needed something better. We needed a savior, a redeemer. Even in the Old Testament, Paul argues that righteousness could not come by the law. Obedience as a means of obtaining heaven's favor is everywhere in the Bible denounced. And yet obedience everywhere in the Bible is called for. It is. It just doesn't earn heaven's favor. Israel's righteousness never depended on them keeping the law. And the law was never a substitute for faith. But to be sure, you will find much grace in the Old Testament. You will find much law in the New Testament. And this is why it makes your head spin. Anybody spinning yet? Okay, and I've tried to make this as simple as I could. But to try to pit one against the other is just enough to just make you nauseous. That's why it's important for us when Jesus says, do not think that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets, that we understand that he's not just talking about a portion of the Old Testament scripture. He is talking about the whole of the Old Testament scripture, the law and the prophets. They would refer to it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. They would refer to it as the law and the prophets. Sometimes they would refer to the Old Testament scriptures simply as the law. But what you're reading here is Jesus's understanding of the Old Testament scriptures as a whole, okay? And so his teaching, again, was revolutionary. It was fresh. It was exciting for some. It was threatening to others. And what is this now, his relationship to their source of truth? Um, so here he was. Here's what he says. I've not come to destroy it, but to what? Fulfill it. Again, this is loaded. This is the way he, 
I think the way theologically this plays out in Scripture about the way that Jesus fulfills the law is huge. Okay? We don't have really a lot of time to, time to unpack it. So what, what he means by fulfill it is he means he's going to obey it. Jesus was born under the law, right? That means he was going to obey it. It means he was going to do what it says, and he was going to be obedient even under the death, the death of the cross. So he was going to fulfill it all. It means that he was going to fulfill pictures and types. Did you know that the offering system in the Old Testament was a picture system? It was to tell us that there needed to be the shedding of blood for remission of sins. Okay? And that was a picture. That was a shadow, what theologians call shadows. The shadow is the substance, the, the shadow of the substance, okay? So the shadow gets here first, and then the substance comes. So if Micah's walking, and the light is behind him, his shadow gets there first, and then Micah comes, okay? It would be foolish for me to focus on the shadow rather than the substance, okay? So what the Bible teaches us is that all of this Old Testament religious worship system was a shadow of that which was to come, and that was Jesus shedding his blood, okay? When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, what he means is this, is I've come to bring it to its accomplished end, what it was designed to do, okay? What it was designed to do but could not do on its own, that's what I came to do. So when we think of it, a lot of times the, the thought is this. Please don't get mad about what I'm going to I got pastoral permission to do what I'm about to do, okay? See the water? Okay. So picture this as what God requires. And this is the law. Okay? Everybody with me? Law. Ceremonial. All of it, right? And what we think is that when Jesus came and grace came, there's a lot of time the tendency is to think that Jesus did this with the law. It'll dry, I promise. Okay? I just blew my illustration. There should still be some water left in there, okay? Still law. You didn't see it all go out, right? <laughs> okay? <laughs> didn't think this through, okay? What Jesus came to do was not throw it all out. Jesus came to fill it up where it couldn't fit. Couldn't do it on its own. So Jesus says this. The law couldn't give you righteousness. This is what Paul argues in Romans 10, right? Israel wants a righteousness and they're confused about what righteousness really is. They want a righteousness that comes from the law, but you can't get a righteousness from the law. The law will tell you what to do, but it can never give you grace to do it. And so what Jesus will do is he will not only tell you what to do, he will give you grace to do it. Listen, there is no other faith like this, folks. You, you listen, you need to sit on this. I'm, I'm telling you, you need to sit and bask in this. Every religion will tell you what to do. No religion will give you the strength to do it. Jesus will not only tell you what to do, but give you the grace to do it and give you the grace when you don't. Do you hear this? There is nothing like this on the face of the planet. And so he, what he means is he's come to fill it up. It, it's, it, it's, a, it's a key term in the book of Matthew. It means to bring it to its desired end. Paul will say that Jesus is the end of the law. In other words, he is the aim of the law. It's what it was all pushing towards. Everything in the Old Testament was pushing towards Jesus. And Jesus is the climax of everything that was in the Old. And so this is Jesus again taking us through this. So he will fulfill this. He did not come to destroy it or to annul it or to deny its authority. Nor did he come to set men, men free from their obligation to be obedient. He came to complete the design of it, the intent of it from the very beginning. So he's not this new teacher who's seeking to escape the scripture's authority. And he's also not this teacher who's trying to anchor us to everything that's old and shouldn't be carried over. 
He's completely different from both. Jesus sees the scriptures, the Old Testament, as finding their meaning and their climax in him as the authoritative word of God that all pointed to him. And if in the Old Testament you miss Jesus, then you've missed the point of the Old Testament. I mean, have you ever thought about the Old Testament? We've got a picture, Jesus in the New, and then the Old Testament. Hey, the Old Testament's point is Jesus. The New Testament's point is Jesus. Take your Bible, shake it in the air, and say, the point is Jesus. And if we miss that, then we miss the point. So now, we got to go on. We're getting, we're getting close, okay? Then he says to this, for assuredly, verse 18, this is one of Jesus' favorite terms, or for verily, or truly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle, um, you have an iota or what's the other one? A dot. Okay. You guys are all reading those heretic Bible. I'm just kidding. Okay. I really am just kidding. I don't, I'm not, I'm not bothered by what version you have of the Bible. Okay. Um, I just brought the one that is different from the one you're reading today. Okay. So he says this, he's talking about the smallest, like the, like the line on the T right. And the dot of the I, he's talking about the smallest minutia of the word. And you have to understand what Jesus is saying. There is not an ounce of this. Not an ounce of this that will not reach fulfillment. Blow it up, burn it down, do whatever you want. Nothing will stop his word until he has fulfilled it all. Until he has made good on every promise. And there are some promises that he hadn't fulfilled all the way yet. Though I believe they all started, right? Okay. Um, there are some that I think he's, he's got to come. I mean, just you think about this. Jesus is saying all of this, heaven and earth will pass away. Listen, the things you see, touch, smell, taste, hear, all of that will pass away. But my word will not pass away. Because he stands behind it. This is Jesus' understanding of Scripture. It is authoritative. And even the smallest detail of it, he is committed to and concerned with it. There is no part that will not reach its climax. No part which will fall from its place of influence. Even the smallest detail will come to pass. Now pay attention to verse 19. Because what Jesus here says is this. Is that our experience of the kingdom of God is directly related to the way that we work with Scripture. Verse number 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, which commandments? The Old Testament commandments or the ones he's about to talk about? I don't know, both. That's, I think, the safest answer. I think it's both, okay? And teaches men so, he shall be what? Called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever does and teaches them, he shall be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice when he gets into verse number 20, he's not talking about being called something in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what? He's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven, right? You see it? Or did I make that up? You will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So verse 20 is about how you enter. Verse 19 is about your experience of the kingdom. We'll deal with verse 20 next week, okay? Don't have enough time. So here's what Jesus is saying. There is at least, and how far you take this, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in here that's kind of hard to pick up. But there is at least some sort of reciprocal relationship between the way we live in the kingdom of God and the way we handle the scriptures. I want you to hear this. There is a reciprocal relationship. The only way I, I know what a sawzall is, but I've used horrible illustrations. You have a circular saw that spins, and then you have a saw that does this. It moves back and forth. It's reciprocal, Right? Okay? In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. He's, he makes a big deal about doing it. 
He makes a big deal about teaching it. Okay? Jesus is seriously and ferociously committed to the word of God, and he expects his followers to be the same. At the very least, you can't walk away from verse 19 and go, Jesus really doesn't care how I work with the scriptures. No, at least at the very, at the very least, Jesus thinks you and I, as his followers, should take the scriptures seriously. Like we should be self-feeders, we should be engaged in it, we should be reading it and seeing it just like he sees it. That's what Jesus now here is saying. He believes that there's a relationship in the way that we experience the, the, the kingdom and the way that we relate to the scriptures. Obedience to him is fundamental to the life of a follower. The central tenet of our faith is that Jesus is Lord. You know that, right? That Jesus is king, that he is Lord, and that we're to obey. One-fifth of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us to do what he said. To do what he said. He ends his teaching with the story of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. And Jesus says, hey, this is the one who hears and does it. Obedience is what called for. As a matter of fact, John would say this. John would say, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So how we handle the revealed will of God is fundamental to living as a follower of Jesus. So let's do this, okay? Let's just do this. Now let's kind of walk through the text. Let's put all these back. You, you, man, look, scripture, Quinn's already ahead of me, okay? So this is according to Jesus, right? Verse nine, number 19, if you want to put some good handles on it, we'll repack it, right? Verse number 19 says this. Scripture is meant to be lived and not just studied. Everybody owns a copy of the Bible, right? Okay. I've got way too many and given way too many away and still have way too many left. That's what I found. That's what I, most of my moving process was, was moving Bibles. I rented a U-Haul to move my Bibles, okay? I don't know what that says about me as a human being, okay? So if you need one, I got one for you. But here's, here's the temptation for me. The temptation for me is to be so concerned with the ins and outs of this book because I find it fun. You may not find it fun. I get that, okay? Listen, I've come to believe this. I, I just used to think that only nerds were nerds. But I've come to realize that we're all nerds, just nerds about something, right? Okay, we're all nerds about something, and so you're all nerdy. Um, and I just happen to nerd out, which sounds really holy, but it's not really holy at all, and I'll tell you why. I nerd out about this book, but I can nerd out about the details about the book and forget to live the book. It's much easier for me to study this and dissect the interpretation of this than it is for me to love my neighbor. It's much easier for me to dissect that book than it is to forgive the one who has wronged me. It's much easier for me to tell you about the theology of salvation and justification and the doctrine of sin than it is for me to turn my other cheek or walk the extra mile. It's much easier for me to deal with the ins and outs of Scripture than it is for me to live it day by day. And what Jesus would have us understand is that this is not a book for you to master. This is a rule of life to master you. You get it? And so, listen, get all the knowledge you want. I think we all ought to be self-feeders. I think if you have a Bible, you ought to read it. I don't think it ought to spend it the whole week in your car, on your dashboard. I think you ought to take it in. I think you ought to spend time in it every day. I, I, I believe all of that, but I also know that the temptation is to make it an end in and of itself and not a means to the end. So Jesus would tell us that Scripture is not just to be studied, it's to be lived. He would tell you that some things in Scripture are weightier than others, even down to the iota and the dot right? Jesus will preach against the Pharisees and they'll tell him, hey man, listen, you, you, you neglected the weightier matters of the law. 
So let's talk about all the ins and outs of how the law relates to the New Testament or how uh, the sovereignty of God relates to the responsibility of man. Or let's walk through all of that and let's not major on the fact that we're called to love our brothers and we're called to love the world. We're called to forgive and pursue equality and all of these. I mean, talk about all of this stuff, right? But we can major on the minors. I think Jesus would also say that scripture often needs to be rethought. Now, I said that provocatively on purpose. Because when anybody says we need to rethink scripture, everybody goes, if you've been in church for a little bit, you go, what you say, boy? Okay, so let me tell you what I say. Jesus is about to give you six examples of truth that is originated within the will of God, the revealed will of God. And Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, fill in the blank, right? What is Jesus correcting? Is he correcting the word of God? Or is he correcting the popular opinion of the word of God? He's correcting man's interpretation. Here's the truth about us. You may not like this, but this is true. We all love to use this book to our own ends. We just do. There's not a soul in the room that doesn't do this. And we never read the Bible outside of a vacuum. You always read it in regard to your context. It just happens that way. That's why slave owners could find a Bible that fit them, and slaves could find a Bible that fit them. Okay, that's why all of this happens. It just we never read the Bible in a vacuum, and we always will tend to gravitate towards the things that we like. We all, in some form or fashion, Thomas Jefferson, this book. We pick the parts that we like. We stand loudest and strongest on the things that we like and that fit with who we are already. And we don't talk about the things that we don't like. And listen, here's what Jesus will tell you. Sometimes we get off track, and because we sometimes get off track, we need to rethink these things, not to come up with a new explanation, but to get back to the heart of what was actually the intent. Jesus is not pulling them away from the revealed will of God. He's taking them back to it because they got so far off of it. We have to have space to be able to think through Scripture and get back to what its heart is, not to come up with new answers. I don't think we need new answers. I think we need to get back to the heart of it because far too often we get so far removed from it. Jesus isn't discrediting Scripture but popular interpretation of it. He isn't giving new answers. He's getting back to the heart and what had always been the heart of it. And then I will say this, that Jesus believes the Scripture to be the authoritative Word of God. I will tell you this right now. This is not a culture problem. This is very much a Christian problem. Behind every argument that is taking place within Christendom right now is whether or not the word of God is authoritative. Does it have authority? Does it all have authority? Or do only parts of it have authority? And this is a debate. And what we need to understand is this, is Jesus lived his life by this rule. And if it was good for him, then it is good for me. Okay? Jesus saw it as authority. And I think Jesus also saw the scriptures as pointing to him always. And so if you read the scripture and you don't come to the conclusion of Jesus, then we've missed the point of scripture. Okay, so you feel thoroughly flushed now? Okay, good. We went through a lot of stuff. So can I tell you how to do this? All right, so Manny, come here. Quinn Diddley, would you bump that slide for me? Okay. I wanted to do this because I wanted to earn Robbie's approval. This comes from the navigators, and if you don't know what the navigators are, you can Google them. You can actually find this hand illustration. This is something that I learned a long time ago, and I think it's very helpful. It's about getting a grip on the Word of God. Okay? So watch with me. He talks about the ways that you get a grip on the Word of God is to hear it. 
Everybody know what we mean by here? You just heard the word of God this morning, hopefully. You heard it when Pastor Nathan, Pastor Thomas, anybody else preaches. You hear it on a radio, a podcast. You read it for yourself. How many of you read the Bible, even if it's every now and then? Don't lie in church, okay? You read it some. You study it. Study it means to pick it apart, right? Okay? You memorize it. Jordan, can you memorize some? Okay. Only because Chelsea's helping you. We know. We know how it goes. And then you meditate on it. You know what meditate means? Okay, I'm going to give you a really graphic word image right before lunch. It means to chew the cud. You know what cows do with their food? It goes down in one of their stomachs, and it comes back up, and they chew it over again. Mmm. Mmm, right? And what it means is you're basically ruminating on it. You're chewing on it. So it would be like you taking a portion of Scripture, and you read it in the morning. This is why you memorize it, by the way. And then you chew on it throughout your day. Your dad talks about how he has Fox News, and I'm not making fun of him because I like him and I need to borrow his van. Um, But your dad talks about how he'll be working in his office, and he leaves the news on running in the background to give him white noise. Well, this is what we're talking about. We talk about meditate. We're letting it run in our mind, not just as white noise, but we're letting it constantly replay itself. But here's the thing about this. If you use only one of these, you will always have a weak grip on the word. So, Manny, hold out your pinky. Just your pinky. Just your pinky. Manny, hold the Bible. <laughs> Manny's been working out, dude. Don't let him lie to you. Hold this. Pinky, pinky only. Okay? Okay. Manny. Okay. Wait a minute. Okay. So obviously hearing the word alone is not enough. You with me? Okay. So let's read the word too. Manny, hold that Bible. Manny. Hold the Bible, dude. Okay. Okay, we're going to add a finger. He's going to study the Bible now. Manny is, Manny is loving Jesus so much now that he not only hears the Bible when it's preached, he now reads it on his own. Now he's studying it. Okay. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Manny's going Manny's to follow Jordan and Chelsea's example. He's going to start memorizing the word. Ooh, Manny, nice, but. Okay. So now, now Manny is going to add meditating on the word. I, listen, meditating is good. I'm telling you, it's really important. Now hold that thing tight. Well, let me take that Bible. Now look, Manny's got a grip on this word, but watch this. Watch this, you ready? Okay, here's what I think the navigators didn't add because we only have five fingers, okay? So Shelton kids, Brewer kids, come here. Come here, all of you. Come here. Come on, Shelton kids. Okay, hold it with both hands. Everybody grab a hold of that Bible. Everybody grab a hold of the Bible. You got to go in the back. Go in the back. Come on, Emily. You're taller than all them boys. Grab a hold of that Bible. Grab it. Here's what we don't think about the Bible. Is that we always want to do it by ourselves. But now look what happens when you join in with some folks. Listen, I can whoop your kids. I can, okay? Okay? Okay, everybody go sit down. Good job. <laughs> Good job. Okay? Now, here's the point of that. Don't ever do this Bible alone. Don't ever do it alone. The fundamental thing that was missing for most of my journey is that I wanted to know this by myself. And I didn't have space for people who could help me. And what happens when you do that is you think you got all the answers until life sucker punches you in the jaw and you realize you don't. Now, let's say this. I want to remind you of this one more time. My goal is less of getting a grip on this book 
and more this book and really more its author getting a grip on me. So before my dad went in for his last surgery, he bought a Bible. Brand new, wrapped, all in the cellophane or whatever you call that. What's that stuff called? You know what I'm talking about? A little clear packaging. And he bought this Bible, old Schofield study Bible. And if you from old Baptist background, you know, that was like, that was like Jesus himself pinned it, right? And so um, he buys this Bible and because he's going to be in the hospital for months recouping from this surgery. He buys this Bible and he passes after he comes out of surgery and he never gets to open this Bible. One night I'm sitting in church years later. This is how grief works. It just has no rhythm or rhyme or makes sense at all. One night I'm sitting in church and I'm listening to this preacher preach and I got my dad's Bible in my hand and I'm looking at this thing and I'm kind of getting nostalgic, right? And I'm thinking to myself, man, he never got to read this. And then it dawns on me. But he got to meet the author. He got to meet the author. If you miss the author because of the book, You've missed the point of the book. Let's stand. Father, we love you. You are good and you are gracious. You have given us truth to live by, truth to know you by, truth to understand, truth to function well. And we admit that it's hard and it takes discernment, it takes work. It takes help. It takes all of the above. But Father, we just submit ourselves to you knowing that you have not left us out here to figure all of this out on our own, but you have given us your clearly revealed word and we just want to be great students of it. Not so that we can be better than others and not so that we can brag or toot our own horn. We want to know the book so that we can know you. It is the means by which, or at least the primary means by which you make yourself known. Do not let us neglect it's power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.